Come on, dude. <clears throat> All right, honestly, I need it this morning because uh, I feel like God just took me through like a triple dose of humility. With Brad's stuff, it hits so hard, bro. And then I was like, I'm like, I have to apologize to Jamie because I exaggerated a story yesterday about, I tried to make a story a little funnier than it was. I was like, I got to do that. And then I have so much respect for these two guys. Brad and Tom, I feel like are some of the most like gifted and like spirit-led teachers. And I'm like, really? I have to like come up right after you guys and, and try to share something. But really, this is, um, is going to be kind of like half testimony and what I feel like God's been doing in my life. And then half maybe just a few things to encourage you guys with and hopefully take some things away. So just a little bit, um, a little bit of my story. I'm, I'm not a preacher. I'm really more of like a business guy. Um, and it's only my second time really doing this. And to be able to do it with you guys is so cool. I love this country, first, first of all. I've always liked South African people in the States, so like I know I'm gonna like it here. There's only one massive problem that I have with your country, and that is the biltong. Here's the thing, it's so good. And it's so much better than, have you guys ever had beef jerky, like American style? It's so much better than what we have. I'm like, I'm ruined now. And it's illegal in the United States. So I'm like, there's just no way I could go home. I have to like stock a bag and bring it back. I don't even know what I'm gonna do yet, but yeah. So my story starts out really as a city kid. I grew up in downtown Seattle, uh, moved to Southern California for college. I was kind of a sports-driven, sports nut kid through my whole life, through high school. In college, I picked up the sport of javelin, which is like spear throwing. That's why I always feel like I'm one with the Zulu people. I'm like. I like respect the spear throwing, dude. I'm pumped up on it. <clears throat> um, right after college, I really had no plan or intention, but I really felt like God led me into the military. So I joined the United States Marine Corps in 2007. Um, it was during training in sniper school in 2007 when I was uh, bit by a tick, which do you guys have ticks? Okay. And do you have Lyme disease? Are you familiar with that? All right. So Lyme disease, it forms this like bullseye style rash. Um, that, that start, started out on my thigh, and then it kind of grew progressively. By the time I got antibiotics in, it was sort of uh, a little too late, and I started to get a lot of like adverse health consequences from it. I was getting a lot of arthritis, like really sore joints, brain fog, where I was just off my game and, and not um, sharp, and then fatigue, even though I was sleeping quite a bit, my health was just, uh, it was really affected, and I was just not feeling like myself. And this is at 22 or 23 years old. So I went and uh, we, we fought in the war in Iraq in 2009, and when I came home, we started learning about how food can actually be like medicine, and the food that you eat and the food you put in your body can actually affect the way that you feel and perform and sleep and all these things. And so my family all went on this journey of starting to eat, you know, whole foods. Like we have something we call the, the standard American diet, or we call it the sad diet. Um, and you guys may have heard about it on the news, um, but we're famous for eating uh, a lot of junk food, a lot of processed food. And so by switching my diet really over to whole foods and trying to buy local and organic, I just started to feel like a kid again. I could breathe through my nose. My back pain was gone. Like I had this clarity and, and uh, this sharpness that I didn't have for several years before. From that experience, what we realized is that like healthy food is really, really costly in the United States. I don't know what it's like here. But in the U.S., if you want to buy things that are organic and local, sadly, for some reason, they're four times the cost. And my family, you know, we were doing okay, but it wasn't like that. We were square in the middle class. And so being able to afford these types of food was really brutal. 
Well, we were joking around, uh, like at around Easter of 2012, what should we do about it? We can't find it. We can't afford it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we were like, oh, we should get some chickens for the backyard. That'd be funny, right? As a city kid, I thought we were joking around about it, like for sure. My brother-in-law sort of disappears from the room. He comes back about 10 minutes later and he goes, hey, uh, I just ordered those 50 chickens that we were talking about. We're like, no, bro, like you missed what we were talking, we were joking. And he's like, well, they're going to be here in two weeks, so I guess you got to figure it out. <clears throat> this is the start of like God's plan for my family. We had no idea. Uh, my in-laws had about, I don't know, a quarter acre. I have no idea what that is in, a, in square meters or anything like that, maybe like a thousand square meters. A big backyard, like your, your parents' backyard size, uh, but it wasn't a farm by any means. And so we got these 50 birds, we started raising them in a way that we felt like um, God really intended. Like, these birds weren't stuck in, they were outside, they were running around in the grass, running around the yard, eating bugs and worms and all these healthy things. And it was honestly a lot of fun, it was eye-opening. Me and my wife weren't living out in that area at the time, we were like out of the beach having a real normal life. I was an accountant, my wife was an interior designer, and uh, things were going along just fine. Well, God decided um, that he wanted to grow it. And so that 50 ended up selling to our friends and family, and then 50 became 100, which became 150, which became 550, which eventually became like one of the largest, what we would say, like pasture-raised chicken companies uh, in the United States. And we ended up, we, we caught a big break in like 2014 when we were uh, contacted by, you guys know the Lakers, the LA Lakers? And the Dodgers, so these are two like massive sports franchises in our area. And they said, hey, we love what you guys are doing. We want to buy your stuff for our players. And that was the catalyst, and that set everything off. We kind of left our jobs and did this whole thing. Fast forward to kind of recently, um, we were contacted by like the biggest organic chicken producer in the whole country. And we didn't ever think we'd be on their radar. But they said, hey, the way you guys are raising chickens is really unique and really interesting, and we actually want to incorporate what you're doing into what we're doing. So what do you think about partnering up together and basically trying to run this together? So now today, it's insane to think 10 years ago I'd never even touched a chicken or probably ever even seen one in person, like as a city kid. <laughs> I see one on TV, but I've never really been around animals or livestock or anything like that. But it reminds me of how, how God called the apostles, you know, people like, so it's just purely his glory, you know? Um, and it's just been, it's been a crazy journey. But the reason I go into that is because I want to kind of try to connect some of the renewal stuff that I feel like God's been showing me throughout this farming journey, which is new for me, um, to some of the renewal that I think he has for every sector of our lives. So if you don't mind, I want to jump into Genesis 1. Uh, if you can flip your Bible there. Tom shared this with us like probably three or four years ago, but I thought it was... For a simple guy like myself, one of the most effective ways to think about the gospel message in four parts. I've never heard this before, so uh, hopefully this is useful. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Um, the first act of the, of the gospel story is around creation. In Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Just to take a pause there, like subdue it and have dominion, I think at least in my country has been like really abused to this idea that we can just force our will upon uh, the animals that are under our care, under the land, and just be extractive and be really harsh on it. I don't think that that's what this is saying at all. Actually, dominion is this idea of like a leader coming down to actually be with his people. Like that's the actual idea of dominion here. And so it's much more of a stewardship call than it is like a, you know, I'm in charge. I'm going to stand on your head kind of thing. Um, 29, and God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in it with its fruit, you should have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he'd made and behold, it was very good. Um, Act one, like Adam and Eve lived in absolute perfection, like total abundance, more than what they ever could have thought. One thing that I love about this is uh, as scientists start to study more about soil structure and what's actually going on, we're learning more and more complexity. It's not like we're figuring out how simple it is. Like we're actually learning how complex nature actually is. So if you do an exercise with me, just hold out one hand. If you were to fill, I know there's some gardeners in here. If you were to fill one hand with healthy soil, inside of the one hand would be 26 billion living creatures. Like imagine the magnitude. That's God's creativity. There's 8 billion people living on the entire planet. So there's three times that just in your hand that we know of right now. Like God's creative and he's massive, you know. Act one, creation is super fun, but we got to move on. You guys know what happens next. The next, uh, the next phase is the fall, right? So if you want, turn over to Genesis 3. Have you ever had this in your life where God's actually given you what you need? He's blessed you with abundance, but then you feel like God's like holding out on you in a way? Sometimes I feel like um, we go, oh, Old Testament, that old silly, te- silly Old Testament, that we never fall into something like that. But Adam and Eve felt like God was holding out on them. Um, they believed the serpent's lies. They ate from the tree. They sinned against God. Ultimately, they, they were separated from God at that exact moment because they can't be connected Almost like what Brad was just talking about. They can't be connected to a holy and just God when they're in darkness like that. A perfectly just God requires payment for sin. And so go into Genesis 3.17 and just pay attention to the contrast from what we just read in Genesis 1. Now when we jump into to Genesis 3, 17 through 19, it says, The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat it You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. Jamie, I know that's just a harsh word for you. As a man like me that loves meat, the thought that we're going to have to eat plants forever. Brutal word. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. This idea of Adam and Eve walking out on the partnership with God reminds me of, you know, a a spouse walking out on a healthy marriage decide, you know what, there's more for me somewhere else. I'm going to go elsewhere. And then they're burned from it, you know. Um, That's the fall. Christians, they lived under this reality 
um, for thousands of years where they had to perform a host of religious duties in order to try to get themselves right with God until Act 3. So y'all probably already know what Act 3 is. It's the single most scandalous, revolutionary, kind of disruptive act in the history of mankind. And that's the redemption, right? The pinnacle of all mankind, uh, where the God of heaven takes on human form. He comes down, and when he's in his young 30s, he's killed as a sacrifice for all of us to, to have the ultimate payment, to be, to be made right with God. Again, magnitude. I'm a former accountant. I'm a numbers guy. There's 8 billion people alive right now. In the history of mankind, they kind of estimate there's been 120 billion people over the course of human history. And if it's true that we lie like every 10 minutes, I try to wrap my head around how much sin Act 3 actually covers. It's like unimaginable magnitude of, a, of love that he has for us. It could never be understated, and it's almost like one of those things where the more you understand it, the bigger and the more profound that it seems to get. That's the gospel story. Like, Act 3 is the best news ever, and I love Act 3, and I feel like there's, there could be a, a billion sermons just on Act 3, but the, what I want to kind of share today is, is actually I feel like a lot of us live in this reality like Act 3 is the final chapter, and it's almost like, well, salvation, awesome, like God died for us. Well, now we just kind of shuffle through life doing meaningless, unimportant things until we die, and then we get to go live with God forever. And I think we fall into this lie that like God actually doesn't really care that much about what happens between salvation and death, and it's not really that important what we do, especially outside of like vocational ministry. It's just like, ah, it's just our job, it's just whatever, we're, our hobbies, it's just our family, whatever we have going on. I think I just want to encourage people with that. So I know that I've fallen prey to this before. Uh, I want to jump into Revelation 21 next, 1 through 5, to talk about the fourth act. This is the one that I didn't really even know was part of the gospel story. Like I always thought it kind of ended with Act, act 3. So Revelation 21, 1 through 5, I'll give you just a second to get there because it's kind of a, um, you know, it's Revelation. You've got to be able to follow along. Uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Almost like that dominion thing. He'll dwell with them. And they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain no more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Are we in a phase where we feel like there's no mourning, no crying, or no pain? No way. So Act 4 isn't here yet. But Act 3 is finished, so we live in this weird time. We're actually like between chapters of the story. We basically live between Act 3 and Act 4. And it's clear, behold, I'm making all things new. God's agenda, the ultimate agenda, is this renewal of all things. Almost like he's completing the circle back to Act 1, right? Where things are like perfect again. It's not there yet, but I, I, I think that, that um, God's kind enough to include us where he'll actually partner with us in the renewal of all things as a foreshadowing to what's to come in, in the completion of Act 4. 
I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, unpacking this stuff, but I do think that the renewal of all things should be taken literally. When he says all things, I think he means all things. Nothing's off limits. So that means it's things like your relationships, all of them. There's no industry that's off limits. There's no task, no city, no street that's off limits, no product. No plant or animal is exempt from God's ultimate agenda of renewal of all things. And the renewal, really, it starts in our hearts, right? And it's, it, it's going to come from the overflow of Jesus' love from us. So it's that Act 3, like the overflow that we have from Act 3, that's what drives our ability to partner with Jesus in the renewal. That's sort of like, um, I hope that was helpful. That was the four-part gospel. Um, and now I'm going to sort of jump back over into the farming stuff. And here's where I'm like a little self-conscious because I don't know that much about South African farming. I'm going to share a bit about American farming. And if that's like the most boring thing ever to you guys, I apologize up front. I, I don't know. You may not have these same factors. But um, at least in the U.S., we think about three approaches to agriculture. Number one, the first approach, and it's by far the most prevalent in the last kind of 70 years in, in our country. We had the Industrial Revolution. I know you guys had that too. Planes, trains, automobiles, everything got efficient. Everything got like massive, much cheaper, much, much better in a lot of ways. For the food system though, it caused what we call like a degenerative outcome. So a lot of the farming, I would venture to say 90 plus percent of the farming in my country is done in a degenerative way. Where every single year, we have this extractive mindset. It requires more fertilizer, synthetic chemicals, more antibiotics, more drugs, more to try to get the same yields all the time. It becomes this very degenerative mindset within agriculture. And it's really around this idea that like, what can I pull out of the land? How much profit can I pull out of it? How much yield can I pull out of it? It's a pretty new way of thinking. Some of you all probably have ancestors that were in agriculture. Maybe even some of you all are, are more recent to it than that. Um, but at least in the U.S., that's the dominant method um, of farming uh, that we have. The food, it's cheap, and it looks like food. That's what's really confusing about degenerative egg. <laughs> it's shiny. It's big, like the apples, the potatoes. They're nice. They look real. But listen to this stat. Um, this has been studied uh, extensively in Canadian and American journals. The potato, again, I don't know if this is going on here, but in the U.S., the potato is one of the most consumed foods in the West. In the last 50 years, because of the way that we've done extractive farming, synthetic everything, tillage, mass tillage, it's lost 100% of its vitamin A. Critical for eyesight, right? Potato used to be a nutrient-dense, rich food. It's completely, all the, the vitamin A is gone. That's not even the start of it. 57% of its vitamin C and iron, gone. Major component for like healthy blood, healthy blood flow. 28% of its calcium, that's how you build bone health. 50% of its riboflavin, 18% of its thymine, which is what supports your immune system. And that's just a potato. There's 25 different fruits and vegetables that have been studied that have completely lost their, what we call nutrient density. So it looks like you're eating food, but you're actually not. And I think that that has parallels in our lives with, with degeneration. Just like degenerative forms of agriculture, rejecting God's ways is going to result in brokenness. It's exactly what Brad just talked about. It relies on poisons. It creates food that lacks nutrient density. It has no soil inheritance. 
it's that whole thing that the ground is cursed because of you. It's like the fall, like degenerative. Here's the only nice thing about degenerative is it's, it's kind of obvious, right? Um, I know that we all struggle with degenerative portions or parts of our, live, or, of our lives every single day, but I'm actually going to like fast forward through the de- 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 degenerative. I think it's something that we can identify and we can try to work on. The second approach, much more sinister, and it's something that we actually don't think about. Who's heard of like sustainable farming? I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a term here as well. Sustainable, sustainability and sustainable farming sounds awesome. You know, this idea that's like, we're just going to like maintain it. The big thing that we miss is sustainability is just basically treading water. So what's the problem with sustainability? Anybody have a, an idea? So what if you're sustaining a broken system? Like, if it's been degenerated, sustainability is not what we need anymore, right? And I think it can look really good. You're kind of in between. We hear this idea in agriculture. We're going to try to reduce our impact. What a depressing goal. We're going to have as small of an impact as possible. That's because the context is we know we're going to do bad, so we're just going to try to do as little bad as possible. That's the idea of sustainability, at least in the U.S. Of course, if you go back to indigenous, before kind of... Uh, we settled, there's lots of great examples that are sustaining a good system. I'm not really talking about that right now. Um, but we see it in nature also all the time. It's really hard to sustain. I would venture to say it's impossible. I can't explain, I can't show you a sustainable farm because I don't think one exists. Like I think in our spiritual life and in agriculture, we're either growing or we're shrinking, right? It's really hard to like stay in one spot forever. And I think... Um, Spiritually, it's actually where a lot of the Western church ends up, is this goal of, like, sustainability, right? And we think that God doesn't really care about the daily workings of our life, what we're actually doing. It doesn't really matter. Like I said, we fall into this trap that, like, well, the only really important job is vocational ministry. And whatever we do, we're going to try to just hustle through our workday or whatever so that we can get to that Bible study or we can get to have that conversation with somebody later on. I think that God has something for us here. We get stuck in this idea of Act 3 where we're saved and we have a spot in heaven, but we end up feeling sort of unimportant or like what we're doing is, is pointless. It doesn't really matter. Um, for 50 to 70 years, I'd say, there's been two options in American agriculture. It's been either degenerative or you kind of push towards sustainability. There's this a major air quote new movement in American agriculture that's not even close to being new. Um, but we think it's new because we think we came up with something. It's, it's a concept that's called regenerative agriculture. And I have no idea if this is hitting in South Africa. I actually know it is because Zim uh, is actually one of the main places that's driven this regenerative mindset to the U.S. for whatever reason. Zimbabwean farmers are like really looked up to um, for the regenerative impacts, which I always thought was kind of cool. And I was trying to get to Zim. I'm going to do it next time. Um, but think about that word regenerative. It's the idea where farmers actually act as stewards and could be a net positive to the environment while creating nutrient-dense food um, for people and communities. It's like, sounds too good to be true almost. But think about this for a second. This is where God's really taught me. I know that you guys have um, like the wildebeest that cruise around the Serengeti, a couple million animals. And think about the way that they live where they're in these huge herds, right? 
So we're kind of going back to creation. They live in these huge herds. What do they do all day long? They're going to eat. What do they do after they eat? They're going to poop. That poop is the best fertilizer literally in the world history. Like Monsanto has never reverse engineered something as good as that poop. Then after they've pooped on the ground, what do they do next? They move on to the next place, right? Only to return to that original grazing location every one to two years. So we have a huge parallel for that in the United States. It's the uh, American buffalo. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. We have like, like 600,000 buffalo now. But 200 years ago, we had 60 million buffalo in our country. And they lived the exact same way as a wildebeest. They would eat, poop on the ground, move on to the next spot. And what that model did is it created the healthiest soil that like these Europeans had ever seen in their lives. So they showed up to places like Nebraska and Iowa and these middle of the country states and they picked up the soil and it was like rich and black. And so what'd they do? They ignored the American Indians and they went and planted monocrops full of corn and soybeans and they started to extract. But God's method is really regenerative where every year with those buffalo, the way that they were grazing, they were building up the soil health all the time. And so in American ag, we're starting to realize, like, dude, there's a big opportunity. If we just follow God's ways, if we follow creation, if we learn how to actually graze these animals and move them so that they're a benefit to the, to the environment, we can produce better, healthier food, we can fertilize the plants, and we can be a net positive to the environment. So it's, just, it's a really, really big difference. On our farm in San Diego, where we're doing, like, I don't know, 10,000 chickens every week or something like that, I mean, it's, it's really grown into something pretty unique. When we showed up in 2016, you would step onto that farm because it had been 50 years in conventional potatoes. So it was fully extracted, like no life left in the soil. It would rain for three months and it would, you'd get like a few little scraggly weeds. That was it. And that's why they left because they couldn't get anything else to grow other than thorns and thistles, you know. Um, but when we showed up, you would step in and your boot would sink like a foot down into this stuff that was not soil. And I wouldn't even say it was dirt. It was just like dust. But by using these principles that we really felt like were from God, poop, you know, eat, poop, move, and move in these birds all around these fields, eventually adding in cattle. I mean, today, the grass is like up to your eyeballs, you know. You have 35, 40 different species of wildlife that have now returned to the area. We see bald eagles and coyotes and deer and tons of squirrels and rabbits, and it's just like a rich, rich environment um, that lets us produce food, but it also does more than just us. Like it gives these wild animals a habitat. It sequesters carbon from the atmosphere. We're able to keep all this water on the farm that, that would have previously run off. So it comes with all these unintended, like good consequences versus degenerative, which started with a good idea. Let's feed the world cheap, cheap uh, you know, food. And it come with a bunch of unintended bad consequences. You guys see some of the direct parallels between the soil and like what happens in our heart. Healthy soil produces nutrient-dense food. It's like resistant to disease and to drought. It's not reliant on a bunch of external inputs like synthetic chemicals and synthetic fertilizers and antibiotics and drugs. And it's not just good for the crop itself, it's actually good for the community. It purifies the air, takes in carbon, in the same way, I would submit that a heart that overflows with the love for Jesus is ripe for partnership with God in the renewal of everything. 
And like I said, the renewal really has no limits. It goes into our sexuality, our parenting, homes, food, businesses, the type of vacations that we take. It's everything. So I just want to ask super practically, what does renewal actually look like? And here's where I think we also fall prey is sometimes, like, could it look like full send, quitting your job as an accountant, going to do something completely different, another part of the world or another complete industry, becoming a pastor or becoming a farmer, like doing something totally 180 different. Like, yeah, it could, but it's honestly not that likely. If you guys could turn to 1 Corinthians 7. There's this blinder that I think happens that you have to uproot your life to partner with God and renewal. You have to completely change everything if you want to partner with them. But 1 Corinthians 7, 17 is really clear. It says, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord's placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. I'll say it again. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the, all the churches. Tom had the whole thing yesterday. What would Jesus do if he was me? I think it's really helpful because each of us have our own unique context. Things that are possible, things that are impossible, gifts that we have, weaknesses that we have. Unique influence I think is a big one that we forget about sometimes. Unique capacity just from stages of life. Like I'm a dad of four and I have a couple businesses. Like there's certain things that I just don't have the capacity to do in this season of life. That doesn't mean never. But here's the kicker. Everything matters to the Lord. I used this illustration last time. Um, but we had a good friend in our church named Jamie who cuts hair in town. And hair's one of those easy ones. It's like, I've heard her say this, like, ah, I just cut hair. I'm just a barber, you know. It's not that big of a deal. But do you guys realize, like, cutting hair is just as important as, like, full-time vocational ministry if we think the renewal of all things actually means all things? And it's not just because she has the opportunity to have this, like, rad conversation with somebody and convert them. It's actually the haircut itself that God cares about. And I use this example, have you guys ever had like the perfect haircut or hairdo when you walk out and you do feel good? You're just like, yeah, man, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going bald now, so it's like less fun than it used to be. But you know what that feeling, I would submit that what that feeling actually is, it's, it's Jamie, it's the haircutter, partnering with Jesus to be his hands and feet and giving people a taste of how God actually sees you. I think that's why it feels so good. It's a new creation made in his image. We were at Eugene's house. They were so kind. Eugene and Simon took us around uh, the township, but we got to stop in his house. And when I saw your artwork, bro, it was just like, I don't know, it's very clear. It's a, a, art can be an industry with a lot of vanity, self-service, selfishness, like look at me, look at what I can do. But I think when it's partnered with Jesus, and I think that that's what you're doing. I mean, the artwork's just beautiful. I think it's a foreshadow of the beauty that God has in store for us, you know? It's like that new Jerusalem coming to earth. It's like that picture with the hands together, bro. It's like very impactful for people, you know? And then I was thinking about you, Fabrice, because I think security can be a thankless job. 
And it can easily be one of those ones where it's like, dude, I just got to show up and like get through it. But really, like, isn't God like our mighty protector, you know? Isn't he like the safety? He's the rock. So I think in a way, you could show up to work and go, ah, oh, this sucks, I got to do it. Or you can show up to work and be like, dude, I get to partner with Jesus to provide safety. It's a big deal, you know? There's, or like, I barely know you guys and I already know a bunch of other examples of this. Michael, how, how long have you been serving the police force? 40 years serving as community in the police force, dude. How about that for like a picture of commitment and what Jesus has, how the way he's committed to us, man, it's beautiful. I know there's a million stories like that, but where we go from here is like, what about, what about you? I know y'all have something and I think it's helpful to do an exercise. Think about like the buckets of your life. I would say, sexuality first, which really just marriage or singleness, whatever stage of life you're in, your finances, your work, vocation, parenting, your relationship with the Lord, your relationship with your community, your hobbies. It's almost like what approach are you taking in each of those buckets of your life? Is it degenerative where you just, it's obvious, there's things that have to change. You're, you're lying, I'm lying, you know? Uh, is it sustainable? Are you falling prey to this idea that like, oh, I'm just kind of barely getting by and God doesn't really care about it anyways, so there'll be another season of life that actually matters. The one I'm in just doesn't really matter. Or do you feel like you're crushing it? You're regenerative in some of these areas. No, I think some, I mean, hopefully some areas you feel like you, you have. Some are kind of in the middle and some are gonna be a little bit weaker, but it's helpful, um, I think it's helpful to assess. The degenerative ones are easy to spot because they're just consistently sort of getting worse all the time. That's a good marker of a, of a degenerative part of your life. And maybe you're here and you're recognizing more degenerative practices or sort of this quasi-sustaining something that's broken anyways practices and you'd like to admit. The good news for you and for me is that Jesus already did it. Like, he already lived perfectly in our place. We're lucky and blessed that we get the opportunity to imperfectly partner with him in the renewal of all things. And he just sits there and he cheers us on when we try, you know? He knows that we're not gonna do it perfectly. He's the only one who ever lived out the perfect record in perfect partnership. So wherever, regardless of kind of where you find yourself, this morning Jesus died to redeem and renew you and invite you to partner with him in the renewal of all things. Uh, just to wrap, I wanted to share a story that, again, man, I don't know if this story is going to work or not, because it's about American music. So, but jazz music's huge in South Africa, right? All right. Maybe you guys will know. Maybe you won't. It's all right. It actually doesn't even matter. So, um, about 100 years ago in North Carolina, which is a state like on our East Coast, uh, a, a, a kid named John was born. Um, he suffered these really tragic losses as a teenager. Um, he was, he, he was a black kid that grew up in, a, in an already pretty hard time in the United States. He lost his dad and both of his grandparents over the course of like three months, and it just really affected him. It sent him down a really, a really tough road. But he always loved the saxophone. He loved to play saxophone, and he was pumped on it. When he went into the military, um, they started to realize this kid, he doesn't just love the saxophone. He has a gift for the saxophone, and not only a gift, but like this dedication 
to practicing and perfecting his skill all the time. And so when he got out, some people, some buzz kind of started in North Carolina. And they're like, hey, you gotta, you know, you gotta look at this guy and include him in some of these bigger acts. And so Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie are two of the biggest names in kind of that 30s, 40s, 50s American jazz scene. And they heard about this guy, John. And they're like, man, we gotta pick this guy up. So John started touring, kind of got his like, um, you know, his wish. He got to start touring with some of the biggest names in jazz. And he worked his way up in that scene. And people were like, man, this guy's really, this guy's really got it. Until the ultimate point where the one and only, I know you guys, you have to know this name, Miles Davis, right? Miles Davis found out about this kid, John, that was an unbelievable saxophone player. There's stories of John playing with Miles Davis, which was his, like, idol as a kid growing up. And he would literally come off set, like, uh, during the intermission, and he wouldn't stop. He would just keep playing sax all throughout because he just wanted to get better and better and better all the time. Well, what happens sometimes when we get what we wanted or what we thought we wanted? John started to fall into the normal temptations that you would as a musician that's got a life on the road. Started drinking, drinking a little too much, start doing a little bit of drugs here and there, not sleeping, kind of promiscuous. Eventually his demise really came when he fell into heroin at the age of, I think, like 29, fully addicted. And now his childhood dream, which was to someday be able to play one song with Miles Davis, he was missing shows. He wouldn't even show up sometimes because he was passed out in his hotel room. Or there's stories of John actually falling asleep on stage during the show because the heroin just does that to you. And as hard as that was, Miles, who loved John, ended up having to fire John because that just doesn't work. You can't, you can't sustain that way. And so he fired John from his absolute dream job when he was only 29. John went through a period of horrible depression after that, trying to find himself, trying to figure out his life and get it back on track. And at 39, he had what he calls this spiritual awakening where he actually fully met with Jesus, or G Jesus came and met with him. And he realized that he had fallen into the performance mindset and fear of man, and he had put way too much into his career. And what he did is he actually went back into the studio and he cut a new album that was a solo album. And his liner notes, which is like the notes inside of the record, uh, they've been read many times since then. So I wanna read you the liner notes from that record that he cut after this horrible period of his time uh, with Miles Davis. It says, he wrote this on, uh, on the liner notes of his own record. This, he, he wrote, this album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. And some of you guys read the book, Every Good Endeavor. I think that's probably where it comes from. <clears throat> some of you guys have heard of uh, John Coltrane. Again, one of the best jazz artists of all time. Definitely one of the best American jazz artists. The album is called A Love Supreme. And if you haven't heard it, it literally has three words in the entire album. A Love Supreme. He says it over and over, like 50 times in a row. And then it's just him legitimately just worshiping on his saxophone. It's like the, one of the most beautiful records ever. I encourage you to listen to it if you can. But here's what hits me about it. Two things. Number one. It's a worship album, and it's been listened to by 
billions of Christians, yeah, but atheists, Muslims, Jewish people, gay, straight, like everybody ended up listening to this worship album that he made. And the thing that hits me even more is when John had his spiritual awakening, what I would have felt like I need to do is, oh man, the saxophone is bad for me, right? I'm gonna put it down, I'm gonna go do something completely different. I'm gonna go rearm, I'm gonna go 180, I'm gonna go change my life. He didn't do that. He literally picked up that same tool that he'd used for himself and for selfishness and for personal gain. And he said, no, no, man, I'm gonna partner with Jesus on this now. I'm gonna do things, I'm gonna see things a totally different way. And that's what ended up cutting um, a love supreme. And so the question I kind of want to leave slash encourage you guys with today is I just want you to think about, like, each of you has a saxophone. Like, a ver what is your version? What is your saxophone? And I encourage you to kind of sit on that and, uh, and to pray through it. And let me just pray us out. God, thank you so much for brothers and sisters that I never knew I had. It's such a gift to be able to come and spend time, and especially to do it uh, with my son, too, to be able to come and just be with these people that are brothers and sisters, and we'll see each other again in heaven, no doubt, but to be able to see them on this side is, is super special. God, I pray into this idea of renewal of everything. I pray that you'd help us to realize how seriously you take that, that nothing's off limits, Lord, that nothing that we do is too big or too small for you, that you're in all of it with us. Help us discern um, what direction you, wanna, you want us to go um, with the saxophone, how you want us to use our giftings and our tools. And ultimately, God, thank you for just letting us, for inviting us to partner with you in this renewal. In your name we pray, amen.